Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray now for the preaching of your word. May your spirit work miraculously. May these ordinary, ordinary things become powerful means of grace so that um, no glory or honor would go to the preacher or, or to any man, but we would celebrate uh, the power of the gospel through your word that you have given to your church to shepherd and bless us and to add to our number by uh, the miracle of regeneration. So may you do this work. May we glorify you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Please take a seat. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 13. Mark 10, verse 13. Kids, here is your question this morning. Kids, who belongs in church? Who belongs here? Yeah, who should be here? Is it, is it people who have done enough good things? That's who belongs in church. No. Is it people who have paid enough money? Is it people who are cool enough? No, if it was, I'd have to leave right now. <laughs> Jesus' disciples had a hard time answering that question. They had a hard time answering the question, who belongs in Jesus' family? Who does Jesus want to welcome? Who does Jesus want to talk to? And you know who the disciples thought Jesus did not want to talk to? Kids. The disciples thought Jesus did not have time for kids. But Jesus not only wants kids to come to him, but he tells everybody that they have to become a lot more like kids. How do you kids think that grown-ups should become more like you? What do you think? We should eat less vegetables. Jesus wants grown-ups to trust him like kids can trust him. Kids, you can trust Jesus in a special way that grown-ups have to learn. Jesus wants you to feel welcome by him just like you feel welcome in your parents' home. Kids, how do you feel welcome in your parents' home? Do you get to eat your parents' food and sleep in your parents' house because you're good enough or cool enough or paid enough? No. You belong in your parents' home because your parents love you. That's why you belong there. And that is why you belong in God's family. Because God loves you. Because God makes it possible for you to be here. He saves us. He does it all. So even when we grow up, when we get smarter and more mature, never ask whether you deserve to be in God's family. Always hold on to simple trust in what Jesus did to save you so that you could be here. Now that is what Jesus' disciples learned this morning, and let's read that in Mark 10, verses 13 to 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Both these stories are rightly so well known children and the rich young man, that we usually read them in isolation. But when you put them together, you see that there's a really clear single message being explained here. In the first event, the disciples send away people who Jesus then receives. In the second event, Jesus sends away someone who the disciples were sure that Jesus should receive. Both events point to the same lesson. Do we understand who is actually welcome in the kingdom of God? So first, let's ask who the disciples thought should be welcome into the kingdom of God. I don't think the disciples tried to turn away the children because they thought Jesus hated kids. They likely just thought that Jesus spending time with these children was a really poor use of his time. This is not a good priority for the busy Messiah, the Son of God. Right now, you see in all the stories surrounding this, the disciples are wondering, is Jesus going to be the king who we crown and put on a throne in Jerusalem, and then he's going to lead us to conquer Rome? They're even starting to have these dreams about the grandeur that they might get to enjoy when they are sitting beside Jesus in his reign. And this wrong view of Jesus' kingdom leads to a wrong understanding of who ought to be welcomed and honored in Jesus' kingdom. You might remember that Jesus has just taught them about who his kingdom honors. It's those who care for the weak, those who love the lowly children. And yet, the disciples can only look at the people being brought to Jesus and they can ask, is this person a good use of Jesus' time? Is this person useful to Jesus? Does this person have some benefit to the kingdom? Is this an important appointment to put into the Messiah's busy schedule? They're asking what benefit people bring to God's kingdom. Now, after these children comes along exactly the type of man who seems like he should be useful and beneficial to the kingdom of God. He is rich, he is eager, and he is apparently a pretty righteous guy. 
Surely, this is the type of man that Jesus is going to want. Jesus is going to make sure he gets him. He's going to pitch uh, the kingdom to him. He's going to make sure that he gets in here. He's going to put him right up front. Friends, have we been guilty of looking at others, even in the church, like the disciples do? Do we size them up and ask whether or not these are the type of people we want to make sure stay in the room? Or whether these are the type of people who we are not that interested in, who could go away and we would not care? Do we tend to gravitate from the type of pe- to the type of people who we will personally receive some benefit from? We're with them because we would enjoy their company, because we would benefit from the time that we would spend together. What does this attitude say about God's kingdom? It says that the church is a meritocracy, a kingdom that rewards people for what they can bring to the table. You will have a better time in this church if you are of benefit to people. The disciples don't realize that they are proclaiming a gospel of works. Jesus should accept people based on their utility, their ability, their amiability, the other illities they bring to the table. The rich man also seems to think this way. He thinks he's got a pretty good resume that he can bring to Jesus. He's kept the law from his youth. And there might be something more to do to inherit eternal life, but he wants to know what it is because he believes that he is probably up to the task. You hear this in his question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response cuts right to the heart of his problem. He answers the man's question with a question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you and I are probably looking at Jesus here and thinking, yeah, but Jesus, you are God. We know that. He knows that. This guy doesn't know that. This man, Jesus is even hinting at that here, but this young man hasn't put that together yet. In his mind, he is a good moral man who has come to ask another good moral man, what is the duty of good moral men to earn their way into God's kingdom? And Jesus' response is, there are no good men. In the truest sense of the word good, there is no such thing as a good person. No one is by nature righteous. No one is able to achieve a true standard of righteousness. The fall has touched every part of who we are. Depravity has totally affected us. Not to make us as bad as we could possibly be, but to leave us with no single action, no part of ourselves that we can point to and say to God, here is why you should accept me. Here is the reason that I am welcome into your kingdom. The young man does not understand this. Jesus shows him this by asking him all about the law. Jesus lists off many of the commandments, the commandments that mostly have to do with loving your neighbor, and the man replies, yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I've kept it. I've kept it since my youth. So Jesus says, fine. Go sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. Jesus is not making a new commandment here that he gives to all of his followers. He is applying the law itself as a surgical instrument to this young man's heart. Jesus says, here's the test. Prove to me that you have met the demands of the law. This is how this man could prove that he doesn't have a covetous heart, that he doesn't worship the idol of money, that he has no other gods but God, that he loves his neighbor as himself. 
And Jesus' test does its job. The man was so sure that he was a good man, that he had satisfied God's demands, and immediately he goes away sad. He knows that he's failed that test. What Jesus showed this man is that there really, uh, there really was something that he could do to inherit eternal life. There was a work that he could perform to be worthy of God's kingdom, and that would be to be perfect. To be perfect down to his very heart, to his secret thoughts. There it is. There's the standard to get into God's kingdom. The disciples appear to figure this out as well. Jesus just sent away a man who really did seem to have the best resume that they had ever seen. Successful, righteous, willing. If this guy can't get into the kingdom of God, we are in trouble. Jesus points out to the disciples that one of the things that they thought actually was a help to this man, proof that he was worthy, is a hindrance to him getting into the kingdom. And that is his wealth and his success. How difficult it will be, Jesus says, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The word for wealth could be translated here as possessions, as stuff. The more stuff you have, the harder it is going to be for you to enter God's kingdom. One of the main reasons is that to our earthly eyes, as we look at externals, wealth appears to be evidence that somebody is doing well. Wealth makes people more likely to look like good men the first in line to receive God's kingdom. You're better put together. You have better resources. And a wealthy person has often come about their wealth by virtue of certain characteristics that we do value, like hard work and organization and diligence. A wealthy person is also usually able to help people in a way that men with less means can't. So men are often expressing extra thanks to those who have wealth. They are eager to speak well of them, eager to talk about how much they appreciate them because they help them in ways that those with less means were not able to do. And so the attitude of the people around the rich, certainly the world, but even within the church, starts to instill in them that based upon their wealth, they do have a certain self-sufficiency that other people don't. They are worthy of a certain honor that other people aren't. They have accomplished something by their own strength. And of course, it is true that the more that we accumulate, the more our possessions are going to pull upon our heart. We might not all have to sell all that we have and give our money away, but that is the test that we should apply to our hearts. Would you be ready if that was the cost of following Jesus. Many of us here, compared to the people around the world today and compared to history, are rich in the possessions of this world. Whether you see yourself as rich or not, you might be comfortable, living comfortably based upon the possessions that you have accumulated. Is Jesus a greater treasure to you than those things? Is Jesus a pearl that you would be willing to trade all of those things to hold on to? 
Or if a time came where you were required to lose all those things for the sake of the gospel, and that time could come, would you walk away from Jesus sad like the rich man did? Stuff and possessions are not evil in and of themselves. God created the world good. The problem is us. It is our idolatrous hearts, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. We are like a bride who gives up her fiancé so she can keep her wedding ring. This idolization of wealth can happen even when we're not wealthy. As much as having possessions does add real danger to your hearts that you must watch for. The danger is in the heart itself. In fact, it is in every human heart. And we see that in the middle of Jesus' statement where it is hard for the rich men to enter the kingdom because it is difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom. The true standard of God's law does not only humble rich men. It does not only rebuke wealthy men. It rebukes all men. There is no such thing as a good man or a good woman. And if God's standard is perfection, There is nothing that anyone can do to inherit God's eternal life. There is nothing we can do to obtain a place in God's kingdom. You might as well be asking, what is the best method to get a camel through the eye of a needle? Maybe if you turn it sideways so that the hump isn't pointing up, maybe if you shave it and lather it in Crisco, you can force it through. It's not just hard, it is impossible. There is no way, there is none. God's law sends away every single one of us like this rich man. God has a standard, you failed. Paul explains this exact point in Romans three. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth would be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Friends, how often do people still go about using God's word to prove that they are good people? That they are making the grade on their own by their own strength. God has to be pleased with them. And yet Paul says the only thing that the law can show is that you have sinned, that you have failed to meet God's standard. You cannot save yourself. The law shuts your mouth. It silences your argument. It closes off your objections. It smacks away anything that you have to offer. That is exactly what Jesus did for this rich man. And the disciples can tell. They understand that. If the law shows that this man is not worthy to enter God's kingdom, where does that leave me? And so they ask Jesus in their astonishment, then who can be saved? That is the right question. That is a good question. And Jesus says, again, it's impossible for you. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not, but not with God. There's that wonderful word, but. For all things are possible with God. Friends, salvation is not impossible. In fact, it's not even difficult. It is easier than this rich man, the disciples, any of us could have imagined it would be. There is nothing to obtain. 
There is nothing to pursue. There is nothing to accomplish because God has made possible what was impossible. That rich young man was asking what he needed to do to draw near to God. And who was he asking? He was asking Jesus, God himself, who had drawn near to us. This man was asking how he could be good enough. And he's asking the one who had come to live a perfect life, to obtain a perfect record and then die upon a cross for people who could never obtain eternal life. We will never see how wonderfully possible God has made salvation unless we accept how impossible it is by our own strength. When we see our unrighteousness, then we see his righteousness. When we see our helplessness, then we see his power. When we see how unworthy we are, then we see how worthy he is. When we see our sin and inability, when we see that we are living as enemies of God, we see what happened when he went to the cross. How that wrath was born for us. So that by a gift of grace, we could have all of our punishment taken and be given the perfect record of Christ. Justified by God, by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation is possible for sinners. Because God has made the impossible possible. Paul tells the Ephesians, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith leaves you with nothing to boast in. Not even your own faith. It leaves us with nothing to take credit or pride in. Even the good works that the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts when we are saved. It leaves us glorifying the one who did everything for helpless sinners. Which brings us back to the first part of the story, to the children. Once we see why the rich young man was sent away, we can better see why the children were received. Now we can more clearly understand what Jesus meant when he said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now this passage does wonderfully teach us not to withhold the gospel from our children. This is why we want our kids in the worship service. It is why it is one of the number one duties of every parent in this room to daily instruct their children in the word and to give them the gospel, proclaim the gospel in their home. Because kids do not need to wait to be welcomed into God's kingdom until they have reached a certain level, till they are skilled enough, till they are mature enough, till they are intellectual enough. They can have saving faith in the gospel right now. Kids, have you trusted in Jesus? Jesus wants you in his kingdom. He wants you there today. He doesn't need anything from you. Jesus just tells you to have faith in him. Trust in him. He died to be a sacrifice for your sin. He rose to give you eternal life. Kids, Jesus welcomes you. Trust in him. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He tells all of us to be more like the kids. Now what does that mean? Because in other passages, of course, in Hebrews and letters of Paul, you hear these constant exhortations. You must go on to maturity. Don't be so immature. You must grow in righteousness. 
You must grow in wisdom. This command to be like a child must be a command which was possible, which could be kept by intellectual giants like the Apostle Paul. So what is natural to a child that we can hold on to even as we grow in our maturity, in our wisdom? You can see it in what the rich man lacked. What could a child naturally understand that the rich man couldn't? A child knows that the things they have are not the things that they earned. They don't eat at their parents' table because they accomplished anything. They don't sleep in their parents' home because they've paid their way. What they have, they have by grace. They have by love. So a child can more easily see that is how God's household works. They have no resume of philanthropy or social standing that they can show God. They must trust that if they are welcomed into God's kingdom, it is not because of who they are, it is because of who God is. The rich man came asking what he needed to accomplish. The children couldn't have even thought up that question. The rich man wondered, what do I need to draw near to God? The children ran to Jesus. And they knew Jesus would receive them. My friend, if you could get outside of your pride, if you could get outside of your self-sufficiency, your confidence that scrutinizes everything based on whether or not it makes you feel good about yourself, just run to Jesus like these children. Stop evaluating whether or not other people belong in God's kingdom. Stop justifying why you belong in God's kingdom or distressing yourself asking whether you belong in God's kingdom. Evaluate God and find him perfectly able to save the worst of sinners, whoever he chooses to. The worst sinner can be cleansed. The worst fool can be made wise to the truth. The worst skeptic can have restful assurance because what is impossible for men has been made possible by God. Now that might be humbling for you, but that is good news for you. Jesus did not humble this poor rich man because he hated him. He said this because he loved him. Mark says that. Jesus loved him enough to destroy his false gospel so that one day that man might come back with the heart of a child and put his trust in Jesus. If God's word is breaking down your pride, your self-sufficiency, your self-confidence, that's great. That is good news. If you then can turn and see that yes, your salvation was impossible for anyone but Jesus. And he has accomplished it. And his salvation is offered to you. And it is free. Grown-ups, trust in Jesus. The disciples seem to carry on the discussion by going back to Jesus' challenge to the rich man. What he was unable to do. Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus' response is to explain what it means to receive the kingdom and all of its treasures. Jesus first assures his disciples, there is no one who has left houses and brothers and sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. This point reminds us of two things. First, 
We cannot treat the sacrifices that we made for the gospel as worldly investments in rewards. How often has that lie been taught? Give to get, plant a financial seed, reap a financial harvest, a harvest of stuff, a harvest of the things that make it hard for you to enter the kingdom of God. How often do we treat God like he is a dealer of karma? Whenever we give something, whenever we make a sacrifice, whenever we do something costly, whenever we make a hard decision for God, we automatically turn around with our hand open and say, okay, make good on that. I just lost a good house for the gospel. Where's my better one? I just lost a good position for the gospel. When's the better one coming? Jesus says, even after you give up your goods, your family, your livelihood, you may continue suffering persecutions. You may suffer, and when it is over, then you will suffer more. The hardest thing I find in the life of a Christian is when they reach that point where they believe they have paid all that is necessary, and they are hoping that God will turn around and turn it to blessing, and then they are met with another wave of suffering. That is just about the hardest thing for us to grasp. So yes, in this life, as far as the cares of this world are concerned, the kingdom of God might be that costly. It might call you to suffer and then suffer more. But that does not mean it has no rewards. They are just rewards that you will say are worthless if you do not have faith in Jesus. Those are the rewards of his kingdom. Rewards that are a great joy to those who have faith and will be worthless to those who do not. What are those rewards? Jesus says there are some treasures that we receive even now and some we receive in the life to come. But if we just said, you might have to give up everything for the gospel, what rewards are we going to get? Brothers and sisters, you are looking at it. You are Christ's reward to one another. Some of you here have lost family for the sake of the gospel. Here is the family of Jesus and he gives it to you. Some of you have lost opportunities and stability for the name of Christ and have great needs. I hope here, in your brothers and sisters, you will find help for your needs. Some of us have suffered great opposition and persecution. I hope that here, among your brothers and sisters, you can find rest among those who joyfully proclaim the name of God and delight in those who have continued to proclaim his name even when it is costly. We'll build you up in it. Brothers and sisters, you come here to be the treasures of the kingdom of God given to one another. As you receive those treasures, desire to be that treasure for someone else. Do not think about whether or not you want to come to church this morning based on whether or not it will make you feel good or benefit you or be what you need in your life today. Don't say that you don't offer hospitality because you like to be alone. You like your house just the way it is. I don't like to go to the worship service every day, because every week, because, you know, I don't need it every week. Some people might. Good for them. I don't need it. 
That is back to the wrong thinking of the disciples. You are evaluating your participation in the kingdom of God based on whether or not it benefits you, based on whether or not this is good for you. That is not what the gospel of grace says. The gospel of grace says that we are never going to ask whether people deserve our presence or our kindness or our hospitality. We are here as a gift of grace to one another. Be a gift. Be a reward of the gospel. Be a treasure to the people who may have lost so much for God's kingdom. And all of those present rewards that we get are just a foretaste of the eternal treasures of the kingdom of Jesus. Eternal life in God's kingdom is ours. The infinite treasure of being united with the king of the universe is yours. But Jesus does end on a final note. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And he must, as he answers the disciples, draw him back to the main point of his lesson. The infinite treasures of heaven are ours, but they are not a return for our worthiness. They are always a gift of grace. And as soon as we start judging whether we deserve those treasures more than others, whether we belong here more than others, whether we have more to offer than others, it does not matter if you are the preacher or an elder or a deacon or a servant, anyone in the church, if that is how you are starting to think about the honor that you deserve here, then you should be worried that you are losing sight of the true kingdom of God that you believe you are becoming the first in line to receive. James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. The church is where those who seem to be first in the world go to get humbled, to see that they as much as anyone have nothing to offer Christ. And it is the place where the lowly, where the children come to be lifted up and find that they are offered all the eternal treasures of the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is ours. The treasures of Christ in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And you do not deserve it. You do not deserve to be here. I do not deserve to be here. But Jesus does. Jesus belongs here. And he wants you here. He died so that we could be here. So what do we do now that we're here? We praise God. We proclaim the sweetness of the grace of the gospel of Jesus for doing what was impossible for us. For making it possible. That's what we're going to do now. Before he went to the cross, Jesus said, here is a visible way to proclaim the bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Jesus to see what was needed to make possible the impossible. This, or make, yeah, make possible the impossible. This was the cost. This was what was needed to save those who deserved the wrath of God. Here is a sign of the extent of the wrath borne by Jesus. The price that he paid, the punishment taken. So that then, we can receive his gospel as nourishment 
unto, the, unto eternal life. Now this table is though for those who are already a part of the kingdom of Jesus, who are brother and sister to one another in the family of faith. If you are not joined with God's family through faith, if you have not been joined to membership in a gospel-preaching church, then wait. Do not take this yet. Join with this family, not by your merit, not by your work. Trust in Christ. Be a part of his family. And then come, enjoy the treasures of his kingdom, even the restful assurance that we have as we come to this table together. I'd like to call the elders and the worship team forward. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that we belong here. We shouldn't belong here, not by our own merit, not by our own worthiness. We thank you that Jesus, God himself, came to be the man that belongs in your kingdom. And he traded places with us on the cross so that all of us could be welcome into the kingdom of God. Father, if there are any of us still trying to walk the impossible road, of asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Father, I pray that you would humble them. If we are bound up in our self-sufficiency through the stuff of this world, I pray that you would show us the worthlessness of those treasures. And I pray, Father, that you would wake us up to an incredibly possible salvation, a salvation made possible, brought near to us by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, broken, shed on our behalf, to open up a door into the kingdom of heaven, a door to eternal life that is ours just as surely as he rose from the grave. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Pass around the bread. Please wait till we can all take it together.